soul because our King reigns on the throne. Thank you, Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you so much to Shirley and the team. What a blessing to worship the Lord together and to feel His presence amongst us. Friends, if you haven't met me before, my name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is a joy and a privilege to be with you this morning. We're really excited to be continuing in our series in John. So if you're joining us for the first time, we have spent many a week in John. This is probably month number three, and it's been wonderful. John's whole gospel is written so that you would come to know that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, that you would choose to believe in him as the Messiah and the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will find life in his name. That's why John has written his gospel, and it's been a joy to discover how Jesus has been displayed in that way and communicated in that way by John for us so that we would see that. And uh, we're going to be continuing in that uh, this morning. We're going to be looking at John chapters 15 and 16. And we're going to be picking up from where Barry left off for us last week. You remember this last half of John's gospel is like an intimate conversation that Jesus has with the 11 remaining disciples before he is taken over to be arrested and crucified. And so last week, Barry spoke about the abiding in the vine. Jesus gives us beautiful metaphor. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches, and the call is for us to remain in him, to rest in him, abide in him, be connected to him, because that's our source of life. And then after having spoken about that, Jesus then begins to talk to his disciples and tells them, you need to get ready because you're going to be persecuted. And so that's what we're going to speak about together this morning. But let's begin. Let's read the scripture. We're going to go from John chapter 15, verse 18, and then across into chapter 16, verse 11. And unfortunately, if you want to go through the rest of chapter 16, you're going to need to do that in your own space because we're going to pick up in chapter 17 next week. But let's read together, and then we'll take it from there. Jesus said this, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would have loved you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will also obey yours. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and the father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They will hate me without reason. When the Advocate comes, I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father. He will testify about me, and you must also testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think that they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when the time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. 
None of you asks, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will prove the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin because people do not believe in me. About righteousness because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. All right, friends, that is the section of text that we're going to read together this morning, and may the Lord bless the reading of his word to his people. I want to begin by giving you an overview of the passage that we just looked at together, and uh, I want to, for illustration purposes, I want to use my my whiteboard in my office uh, as an illustrative aid, but I don't expect you to read too much on it because it's kind of small and it's difficult to photograph, but I want you to know how much fun I had digging into this passage of text together and exploring how Jesus communicates his thoughts. Um, Our text spans two chapters. Uh, It goes from 15, 18 to to 11, and it pivots around, there's a little blue block in the middle there. It pivots around, and this is going to be a little technical, an, an indicative imperative coupling. All right, that, that Jesus gives around the I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment. Okay? The indicative part is that he tells his disciples that he is going to send the Holy Spirit and that he, the Holy Spirit, is going to continue to testify about Jesus. That's the indicative. It indicates that something is going to happen. Right? And then he attaches to that an imperative, and you also must testify about me. Right? There's a command. That's the imperative. The indicative, the Holy Spirit is going to come. The command, you also must testify as he is going to do. And so with this coupling, Jesus now links the activity of the Holy Spirit and the activity of the disciples and what they're going to do. And it also serves to indicate for us a change in role between what Jesus has been fulfilling in his ministry on earth and the ministry that the Holy Spirit is now going to fulfill with Jesus no longer being physically here on earth. And so it forms this critical pivot point in the passage. Jesus is saying, that which I have done, the Holy Spirit is now going to continue in even greater ways. And that which I have experienced, you as my disciples, are also going to experience. And so this this coupling forms the centerpiece and the crux of this passage, and the rest of this passage is going to turn around this call. Before the coupling, Jesus says to his disciples, and he warns them what they're going to have to endure and why they're going to have to endure it. And then after the coupling, he's calling them to join in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which is going to continue the ministry that Jesus himself began. And so the force of the, the, where the force of the imperative command carries through on the indicative observations about the work of the Holy Spirit. I think I probably should have cut that sentence. It was just too technical. Right? But hopefully, as we dig into this together, you're going to see how some of that more technical stuff flows together and the passages and the arguments and the logical flows Jesus makes are going to come and connect back together and it's going to center around this call that the Holy Spirit is going to testify and we also are going to testify. So let's, let's begin to, to look at this in greater depth. And the thing that Jesus is primarily doing here is he's warning his disciples about the persecution that's going to come. And you can read about the persecution they experienced if you read the rest of the New Testament. If you go and read the book of Acts and Corinthians and Hebrews, you will see some of this persecution that Jesus is speaking about now. 
Peter and John were both incarcerated, thrown into prison. They were flogged for sharing their faith. The rest of the apostles were also thrown into prison together. Stephen was arrested and stoned to death. James was beheaded. Paul and Barnabas were driven out of the city of Antioch. Paul is stoned at the city of Lystra to the point of death. He also endured a whole lot of other things which you can read about in 2 Corinthians. And then the believers in Hebrews, they had their property confiscated and they get exposed to public reproach and slander just for believing in the name of Jesus. Sometimes those stories that can feel a little bit divorced from our own reality here in Cape Town in South Africa. We, we don't live under some kind of ISIS regime. And so the level of persecution that the disciples endured and that some believers around the world endure is just not the same that we endure here. And so sometimes these warnings can fly a little over our head. So what I've done and what I want to start with this morning is to look at a couple of examples of persecution that is happening to Christian people here in South Africa and in the Western country so that we can see a little bit of what that's going to look like for us. And before I show you those, I just want to say some of the things we're going to look at and talk about this morning are quite sensitive. And it's important that we talk about them because Jesus wants his disciples to be prepared for persecution. And he wants them to stand for, for, against sin, for righteousness, and for right judgment. He wants us to show the world what that looks like. But sometimes that can get very personal. And it's not my desire, and I really want to say this right up front, it is not my desire this morning to evoke guilt or shame in anyone who is here. Right? No matter what we have been through, no matter what we might have done in the past, God has grace for us no matter who we are or what we have done. And he redeems us. And if you find yourself hurting as a result of anything we discussed this morning, I would love to invite you, please come and chat. Because more than anything, we love you and we care for you. And we want you to be able to continue in your walk with Jesus. But I want us to look at some of the things that we might experience when we stand for Jesus. So, can you show us the first image, Freddie? This happened a number of years ago. There was a church in, uh, I think it's yeah, California, where a pastor called Justin Hoke, he was fired by his church for putting this sign up outside. Now, most of you at this service will probably be familiar with Caitlin Jenner. Caitlyn Jenner used to be called Bruce Jenner. He was a man who won a number of Olympic gold medals for the American athletic team in, I think it was the 70s or the 80s. And in 2015, he underwent a sex change. And he became Caitlyn Jenner. He even won Glamour Magazine's Woman of the Year Award. Now, this pastor put up a sign that said, Bruce Jenner is still a man. Homosexuality is still a sin. The culture may change. The Bible does not. His church fired him for that sign. There wasn't, a, there wasn't a lawsuit from outside, but the church said, we actually cannot abide that you would make that statement. Let's get a little closer to home. This is the closest to home we're going to get. But over the hill, there is Weinberg Military Hospital. There was a doctor in 2017 there who was doing his internship at that hospital by the name of Dr. Jacques de Force. He was working there, and a lady came to him, and she looked for an abortion. And she had a 19-week-old child, infant fetus. And he advised her against an abortion, and he told her that the fetus she was carrying was a human life. And as a result, she chose not to have an abortion. But because of that, 
The hospital refused to sign off on his internship and reported him to the Health Professions Council of South Africa. And they suspended his license and banned him from practicing for five years. And for five years, at his own expense, he has fought a legal battle with the Health Professions Council of South Africa, which he has eventually won in February of this year. And after five years, he's now allowed to practice medicine again. On the same topic, you might know that recently the American Supreme Court overturned a historic case called Roe versus Wade. Roe versus Wade was the legal foundation in America that allowed abortion to be legalized in a number of states. And when that decision was overturned, it meant the abortion laws were changed. And so as a result, a number of pro-choice activists vandalized a collection of Catholic churches, and they even burnt a number of women's uh, pro-life clinics, health clinics that had been set up to help a pregnant woman. Let's come back to home again. Down the road is, is Hermanus, and after Hermanus is Stanford. In Stanford, there was a wedding venue called Beloftobos. Beloftobos was approached by two young ladies who wanted to celebrate their marriage there. Now, Beloftobos is owned by a Christian couple, and they didn't feel like they could, before the Lord, celebrate a gay wedding at their venue. And so they denied this couple's service. This couple took them to court and sued them for two million rands because they had refused them service. And they they said they didn't actually want the money, they're going to give it to charity. Let's go up to Durban. In Durban, a guy called Simeon Bradley Chetty is a pastor who, who lives and works in Durban. He was a Hindu who found Jesus and converted to Christianity. In June of 2020, he posted a video to his own Facebook page where he shared his own testimony about moving from the emptiness of Hindu idols in Christ and finding life in Jesus. The South African Hindu Dharma Sabha instigated a civil case against him for hate speech and sued him for a million rands worth of damages. That case eventually went to the Equality Court, which ordered Mr. Chetty to apologize to the Hindu society and to attend a oneness seminar, where after they agreed to drop the million rand suit. Let's go overseas again. Some of you will remember Israel Folau. Israel Folau was a very famous Australian rugby fullback. He was one of the best rugby fullbacks Australia has ever had. And uh, he made this post onto his own Instagram account. Ready if you'll put that up for us. You probably won't be able to read the finer prints. There's, there's a very big, ugly label there. But the fine print says this. Those that are living in sin will end up in hell unless you repent. Jesus Christ loves you and is giving you time to turn away from your sins and come to him. And then there's a scripture from Galatians chapter 5. For putting that onto his own Instagram account, Israel Flau was fired by Rugby Australia. He lost a $4 million contract. He then tried to contest that ruling and decision. And in order to do that, he needed to fight a legal battle. And so he needed money to fight a legal battle. And so he started a GoFundMe page. So GoFundMe and there are a few other... um, companies that do this are companies that create a platform for you to share your need with the world and for people who see that and want to help you to donate money to your cause. So he started a GoFundMe page and he had a number of donors. And then GoFundMe decided that they would not support him and they cancelled his campaign and refunded his donors because he had posted scripture onto his own Instagram account. Lastly, there's a, a man in Canada This man was arrested for refusing to consent to his 15-year-old daughter who was being prescribed puberty blockers. She was counseled by her school counselor 
that she was a prime candidate for transgenderism and that she was actually suffering from gender dysphoria. And so without consent of her parents, she was, was handed over to the medical system who wanted to give her puberty blockers. And the father disagreed with that. He was then taken to court for refusing consent. He was also told that they would go around him and that he was not allowed to refer to his daughter as a woman and to use her birth name. But he had to use a new name and refer to her by her own gender pronouns, which he refused to do. And as a result of that, he was arrested and put in jail for family violence. Friends, I show these things to you because this is what persecution begins to look like for us today. This is what is happening in South Africa, around the corner, and in the Western world that we live in. And it's, it's why I prepared to share this sermon today with a certain level of trepidation. Because I know that even in the church, many of these topics are loaded. And they're emotional and they're close to home. But I believe that Jesus has called his disciples to be ready to experience persecution and to stand for how he has created them to stand. And we need to prepare ourselves. We need to prepare ourselves. And so as we do that, as we, as we have these examples in our mind, let's go and look at the text again. And I want to highlight three key observations that I think we need to take away from John 15 and 16. And the first one is this. Jesus wants us to know that if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And he says they will do this for a reason. They will do this because they hate me. They, they don't believe in me as the Messiah and they hate me. And because they have never known me, nor do they know the Father, so they hate Even though many of them in this case are Jews, so that's quite a condemnation against the Jewish people to say you've never known the Father. But if they are going to hate Jesus, Jesus wants his disciples to know that they are going to hate them as well. And it's not going to get better. In other words, he's going away. Don't think that because I'm going away that the persecution that I've experienced and I'm about to experience is magically going to miss you. That's what Jesus is telling his disciples. He's making sure they don't get the wrong idea. This is not going to be one of those situations where when you cut the head off an organization, the organization is just left to flounder and and to be left to its own devices. That's not what's going to happen, Jesus is saying. He's saying there is a fundamental, diametric opposition that exists between you and me as my followers and the world that we live in. We are diametrically opposed to one another. And the world is not content to just remove the leader. They will fundamentally hate you. And they will take every opportunity that they can to attack, to defame, to subvert, to malign, and to oppress you because you love me. He says this, verse 19, he says, This is the reason, if you belonged to the world, the world would love you. And as it is, you do not belong to the world but I have chosen you out of the world. And that is why the world hates you. Because God has chosen us out of the world, he has called us out of darkness, and he has made us something fundamentally other to darkness. 
Because we are now other. Our otherness begins to expose the sinfulness of the world. As God is working and acting in your life, He is changing and transforming you into the image of Jesus. And as He does that, your differentness, your otherness, your Jesusness begins to show everyone around you how you are different to them. And they feel judged by you, even if you don't judge them. And so they begin to hate. See, our lives should appear different, friends. When we know Jesus, people should look at you and they should be able to see a difference between you and the other people that they know. Because the King of Heaven has called us out of darkness. He has taken us and He has set us apart and He has made us holy. Just as Jesus is holy. We are now able to enter into the very presence of Almighty God, not because God is just, you know, looks the other way, but because Jesus has covered us in his blood and you are clean, you are holy, you are set apart, you are other than anyone else. Even as the lives we live catch up to what God has already done for us in the Spirit. Our life should be different. It should stand out. And sometimes that difference is going to be a blessing to others. But sometimes it's going to be incredibly offensive. Paul told the Corinthian church that this was going to happen in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He wrote this and he said, Our lives are like a Christ-like fragrance that rises up to God. But this fragrance is perceived differently by people who are being saved, by people in whose lives the Spirit is at work and calling them back to Jesus and calling them to salvation, and those who are perishing, those who are rejecting Jesus and acting against Jesus. To those who are perishing, we are the dreadful stench of death and doom. But to those who are being saved, we are a life-giving perfume. We smell the same. But people will perceive that differently depending on what God is doing in their lives. So this is the first observation that we need to take out of John chapter 15. Jesus has taken us out of the world. He has made us different to the world. And because of that difference, our difference begins to highlight the sin that exists in the world. And as that happens, those who are in sin choose to hate us. It's the warning. It's the warning Jesus gives to his disciples. It's a warning we need to carry and be aware of. And there's a reason Jesus warns his disciples like this. There's an important reason. He says, I have told you this, and this is the second observation. I have told you this so that you will not fall away. You notice, you notice something that Jesus doesn't say. In this. He doesn't say, I have told you this so that when it begins, you might leave that place where it's getting a bit hot and go somewhere else where people are a bit more accepting and maybe it'll be okay. It's not what he says. See, 11 or 10 of the remaining 11 disciples are reputed to have been martyred for their faith. And only John survived because they tried to boil him alive in oil and the Lord somehow protected him and so he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. That's what church tradition tells us because it's not recorded for us in Scripture. Jesus was not concerned for the health of his disciples. He was concerned for their faith. Jesus wants them to know very early on that to be a disciple means to endure persecution because he wants them to stay the course. Now, some of you may remember what it was like to be in high school. I still struggle to remember what it was like to be in high school, and it was only half my life ago. 
But about half my life ago, I was in high school and we were doing a cultural production. I think it was Guys and Dolls, I honestly can't remember. But we did this big play thing that was put on every year and had a whole bunch of guys from the boys' school and the girls' school from different grades and everyone got involved and it was a big production. And I had a very small part. I was a, um, a singing extra, basically. It's also, at that time, I encountered a stronghold about my ability to sing, but that's a story for another time. <laughs> And I'm in this, I'm in this play and we, we're doing rehearsals and it's probably about two months to go until we have to now like put on the show. And I, and I remember the, the music teacher who was facilitating the whole thing, he, he came up to us and he said, listen guys, we actually, uh, we've got quite a bit of work to do. So we're going to step up rehearsals and we need all of you to, to be here five days a week after school for four extra hours to carry on to get this right. Now, Dale will tell you the Weinberg productions were top-notch. You know, the, guy, the guys did really good work. But I didn't sign on for four extra hours every week after school. I love to play sport as well. I didn't have every afternoon to give to this thing. And so what happened? I stepped out. I bailed. I was like, you know what? This, this is not for me. And that is the exact same temptation that we all confront when we are faced with persecution. You see, persecution... And the threat of persecution is not actually about the infliction of harm. That is not the goal of persecution. The goal of persecution is to get you to renege on your faith. It's to get you to abandon Jesus. It's to get you to step away from the things that God has called you to. It's to take what Jesus calls black and white and to call it gray. That's the goal of persecution. And it comes down to things like this. Will you celebrate a gay wedding, even if it's in your family? Will you add your preferred pronouns to your email signature? Will you join in the office pride month? Will you refrain from sharing your faith at work or among your friends because you're concerned it might offend someone? Will you agree to create mixed gender bathrooms when the school board raises it at a members meeting? Because if you stand up and you say no, you're a bigot. You're small-minded. If you stand for what you believe, well, we might fire you. We don't want your kind around here. And if you refuse, we might sue you. Because you insist that your way is the only way, and that's not very open-minded. See, Jesus knew that persecution could not harm the eternal security of his disciples unless it caused them to choose to abandon what they believed. And so he warns them ahead of time. Beware that persecution does not cause you to let go of the thing that makes you mine in the first place. We'll talk a little bit more about that a bit later. But that is the second observation that we need to carry out of John 16, is that we have been told these things, we are warned of these things beforehand so that we will not fall away. Here's the third one. Convicting the world about sin and righteousness and judgment. We need to, we need to explore this a little bit because this is A, really, really great. I don't want to say cool or exciting. It's maybe a bit more serious than that. But it's also a little bit, a little bit interesting. So 
And this is the promise that Jesus gives to his disciples about the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit is going to do. So let's refresh ourselves, verses 8 to 11. Jesus says, when he comes, the Holy Spirit, he will prove the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Now I want to make just a few brief observations about the rendering of these verses and how we read them and what we see in English. Because the Greek of these verses is a little bit condensed. And so it's led to a few different nuances in how we understand these verses. And so the first thing to to look at is the Greek word elenko, which, which means convict, or which is here translated by the NIV, prove to be wrong. It's more commonly translated convict, and most of the other translations use the word conviction, and I, or convict, and I think we should carry that connotation through. The NIV has chosen proved to be wrong for reasons that we're going to see in a moment, right? and I think that's helpful because it's lent a, a good understanding to the rest of the passage. But conviction, the work of the Spirit, the work that the Spirit does in this is to go and to, to call out what is wrong and to call towards righteousness. Right? That is the work, that is the word and the meaning of the word that we have there. And, the, and the reason the NIV chooses that rendering is because of the rest of the passage from 9 to 11. So I want to show you an alternative rendering. This is what the NLT translates. And I love the NLT, by the way. I think it's a great translation, and I would recommend that you all read it. All right, but the NLT records it like this, and it says, when he comes, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgments. Do you notice a slight difference? Between those two. See, the NLT, their translators, they connected sin to the world, righteousness to God, and judgment to the final judgment that will come one day with Jesus. So the NIV tries to maintain some of the ambiguity that's contained in the Greek. And it gets a little bit technical as to which one is better and why we should re- prefer one over the other. So I won't dig too deeply into that with you. All right? But I think the NIV has a better understanding. I think that what Jesus is trying to convey here is that the Holy Spirit has come to convict the world about their sin, their standards of righteousness, and their judgments. So all of those things are attached to the world. The Spirit has come to call out that which is wrong in the world, that which the world calls wrong. He wants to show them what that is. He also wants to show them where they think they are righteous, where they think they stand, and what their markers of what good behavior is. The Spirit comes to call out where that is wrong and misses the standard of God. And the Spirit comes to show them where their judgments are flawed because they've been based on a flawed perception of what is right, and so they're making wrong judgments about that. Does that make sense? You kind of with me? Okay, good. So let's dig a little deeper into what Jesus is saying. And I want you to notice how he connects now the ministry of the Spirit to the things that he has said before. Remember I said earlier that the indicative imperative coupling, the thing that happens in verses 27 and, uh, 26 and 27, right? this is what the Spirit is going to do. He's going to testify about me and you also must testify. I said that that coupling is going to form a bridge between the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit is now going to take up. Well, notice the point he makes in verse 10. Jesus says, it's because I am going to the Father that the Holy Spirit will now perform this role. In other words, I used to do this, 
and, and I'll prove to you in a moment briefly that this is what Jesus used to do as a part of what he did. But now he is not going to be physically present on earth anymore. He is present by the Spirit. And so because he has gone to the Father and he is no longer physically here, now the Spirit takes over that portion of ministry that he used to do. Does that make sense? Okay. So because part of what Jesus did was to convict the world around its sin and its failures and its righteousness and its judgments, let's, let's look at, for instance, the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew's, Matthew chapters 5 to 7, Jesus says a couple of different things, but he does all of these three things in that one sermon. So he tells them, they keep saying, you say X, Y, and Z. You say, do not murder. You say, do not commit adultery. But I say to you. So he redefines their standard for sin. Right? They thought it was wrong to murder. Jesus says, actually, what's really wrong is to harbor hate in your heart towards someone else. Your standard of sin is too low. We need to lift it up a bit. Right? He also redefines for them what righteousness is. They thought if we obeyed this collection of rules, then you would manage to be righteous. Jesus says, actually, I'm calling you to be holy as my Father in heaven is holy. The standard and the bar for righteousness is now much higher as well. And he also challenges their understanding of judgment. He says, judge not lest you be judged. Don't presume to judge because you're going to judge incorrectly. He goes on to explain that in Matthew chapter 7. John chapter 8 is maybe another one to speak more closely into the judgment thing. Do you remember in John chapter 8, Jesus is having a long conversation with the Pharisees. And he's just told them some wonderful things, you know, if uh, the truth sets you free, you will be free indeed. And if the Son sets you free, uh, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Let me not mix them up. And then he gets into this long conversation about who he is and how he's connected and related to Abraham. And then they say, no, but Abraham's our father. And he says, no, guys, Abraham is not your father. You are sons of your father, the devil. Remember that? Very confrontational moment in John's gospel where Jesus really calls out the Pharisees. And it connects really well into the space because Jesus here in, in verse 11, he says to them, that the Holy Spirit has come to convict the world about their judgments because the enemy of this, the ruler of this world has already been judged. In other words, you are, you, because you are sons of your father, the devil, you're thinking like him, you're judging like him, just like he is the father of lies, so you are believing the lies that he has spewed you. So you're making judgments in light of bad information and wrong standards of righteousness and wrong standards of sin, so you're making bad judgments. So just as he has been condemned, so you're going to find yourself condemned and your judgments are flawed. The nutshell is that Jesus is ascribing to the Spirit the part of his ministry that he used to perform himself when he was here on earth. And it's the work of calling out the failure in the world's standards for sin and their false ideas of righteousness and their fallacious judgments. And his promise is that that work is now going to continue through the Holy Spirit. Are you with me? Okay. And then his encouragement to his disciples is now that it's better for him that he, it's better for them that he leaves. And it's not because when he leaves, the closeness that they're going to experience with the Holy Spirit is better than the closeness to having the presence of Jesus with them. That was more the promise that was for them in John chapter 14. But now the promise is different. He says, it's better for you that I go because the Holy Spirit is going to be able to do this work that I was doing in a much broader and a much more widespread manner. 
See, I was localized as a person. I could only be in one place. And what's going to happen is, and Jesus knows this, persecution is going to break up, and you guys are going to spread all over the country. And if I was just one person in one place, I could only ever be in one place. But now it's better that I go and the Spirit comes because the Spirit is able to go all everywhere ahead of you. And He's able to do the work before you get there to open the doors and to, be, to till the ground, as it were, before you arrive. And that's an encouragement for us. That the ministry that the Holy Spirit undertakes, it's the same ministry that Jesus had, and it's the same ministry that we are called to carry out as well. Remember verse 27? And you also must testify, because you have been with me. And there's a promise for us in in verse 20, if we go back a little bit to remember, our ministry can be to some degree effective because the Spirit has gone out before us. And so Jesus said, if they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. If you look at the ministry of Jesus, a lot of people rejected what he had to say, but a lot of people followed him as well. And there are some who heard the work, the power of the Spirit at work through Jesus, and they turned and they repented and they followed. And Jesus has promised to his disciples and to us is that as the Spirit goes out ahead of people and begins to convict them about these things, so when you speak to them, some will reject you and hate you, but some will also believe. Hello? There we go. That's what John chapters 15 and 16 in this little section is really all about. I want to take a moment as we draw this to a close to just talk about what, it, what does that mean for us now today? In marriage, as we're here, wherever you might be as you're listening online, what does it look like as you try and live this out? And there's a reason I felt it was necessary to spend a significant amount of time in looking at what persecution looks like for us at the moment. Because in this passage, Jesus is calling his disciples to take a stand. He said to them, I have taken you out of the world. You are no longer of the world. You are different to the world, and you are called to live by different standards to the standards that the world lives by. Friends, I don't know how much time you spend watching the news at the moment. I try to spend as little as possible because it's incredibly depressing. But our world is so horribly confused about sin and righteousness and judgment. We are so horribly confused. We think men are women and women are men. We've invented gender because we don't like that God created them male and female. And we think children who haven't even gone through puberty have the right to choose which shade of gender they think is more appropriate to them. We fight to save trees, but we freely murder children. We've replaced truth as the arbiter of justice, and we've allowed offense to take its place. We've defunded the police, and we've chosen to arm rappers. We've removed the burden of proof in our legal system, and we've settled for the righteous anger of a Twitter mob. We're too scared to use the word pedophile. And so we say minor attracted person. It's become offensive to refer to someone as a mother. And so we have to say birthing parents. We've removed the sanctity of marriage and instead created websites to help facilitate affairs. And we ask God to bless our our land but we remove him from our schools and we remove him from our culture and we even remove him from your own social media accounts. Friends, when we stand up and tell the world that they've got it wrong, they're going to hate us for it because they haven't known the Father and they do not know Jesus. But Jesus calls us to partner with him 
to join with the Spirit and to continue to testify about Him. To continue as He did to show the world what real truth and real righteousness and right judgment look like. To show the world that there is one name under heaven by which you can find life and meaning and purpose and it is the name of Jesus. I'm not going to lie to you. That's going to cost you. I don't know what it's going to cost you. Cost Jacques to force five years of medical practice and income. Cost the owners of Beloftobos the, the right and the ability to have weddings at their facility. Cost Israel Falau four million dollars and his means of employment. Cost Rob Hoogland, which is the father in Canada, he got thrown in jail for trying to defend his daughter. I don't know what it's going to cost you when you take a stand for Jesus. I don't, maybe you're going to get ostracized from your family. Maybe you're going, you might lose a job. You might lose income. I don't know what it's going to mean. But I can tell you this. I can tell you that if we don't stand, eventually the ground that we stand on for our faith, the ground that our faith rests on, is going to disappear under our feet. And we're going to be fallen. Jesus warned his disciples ahead of time because he did not want their faith to fail. I share this warning with us today. And I pray that God will give us the grace to stand wherever it is he calls us to stand. That our faith may not fail. And that through the Holy Spirit, as we take our stand, as we share the gospel, as we stand for what is right and true, that some will see that there is a name under heaven by which men can be saved. And we'll find the hope and the truth and the life that exists in Jesus. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come and to, to join me on the stage. And we're going to close and I'm going to pray for us. But I recognize there might be some of you, you might be facing a very specific situation at the moment. Where you might need to take a stand for your faith. I don't know what that might be. And I might not necessarily have the wisdom for you to know what to do and how to do it. But I, if you would like specific prayer, there are those of us here who would love to pray with you. And we would be honored to contend with you for the Lord and his kingdom to come in those spaces. But let's turn our, our hearts and our eyes over to Jesus and allow him to, to just speak and, and minister to, into us. Jesus, I bless you and I honor you that you are the Emmanuel God. You are the God who is with us. And that even in the presence of our enemies, you prepare a table before us. We, we will have many enemies in this life, God. You have told us, you have warned us ahead of time that to come and to be with you is to be against the world and to expect opposition from the world. And Lord, I pray for us as we are here together this morning that you would give us grace and wisdom to know how to stand and to be beacons of light in the darkness and the brokenness that is our world and to call people back to what is true and what is wholesome and what is right and where there is life in the name of Jesus. Help us to do that, God. Strengthen us, God. Provide for us, Lord, in all that we need. Lord, may the people of this church, may your people at this church be powerful, shining lights for the kingdom of God 
in the world that we live in. May we be lights in our family. May we be lights in our friendship circles. May we be lights in our offices, in our schoolyards, in our universities. May the light of Jesus shine through us. Give us grace, God, to stand in you, to rest on you. And help us, God, not to compromise what you have called us to stand for. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.